Good morning, everyone. Why don't you turn to Colossians chapter 3 with me. Start with a question. What is the purpose for Christians? What is our purpose? Not us individually, but overall. We turn to the book of Ecclesiastes. We see that the author there said that it was to fear God and obey His commandments. Back in the 1600s, the framers of what's called the Westminster Confession of Faith said that a man's chief end is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. That was their purpose for mankind, to enjoy God forever and to glorify Him. Back in 2002, and this is not an endorsement or anything else, but Pastor Rick Warren published a book entitled The Purpose Driven Life. And it was all about purpose for Christians. He highlighted five things that the scriptures mention, and I believe he's probably right on these five things. I have no problem with that. The first is to know and to love God. The second was to love others. The third purpose was to grow spiritually and become like Jesus. The fourth was to serve here on earth as practice for serving him in eternity. And the fifth thing that Warren pointed out from the scriptures was that the fifth is to carry out the personal mission for which God uniquely created each one of us for. So the first four are more general. The last one is that part of our purpose is to fulfill whatever individual purpose God may have given us. I think all of those probably capture in some degree what it means for Christians to have purpose. However, my favorite, and I believe probably the most correct, if you will, purpose for Christians comes from what Paul wrote in Philippians chapter 3. Why don't you go ahead and just keep your finger in Colossians. We'll be coming back to that for our passage today. But turn to Philippians chapter 3. I'm just going to read verses 8 through 14. Paul summarized purpose for the Christian in Philippians chapter 3, verses 8 through 14, by writing... More than that, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them all rubbish, so that I may gain Christ. And I may be found in Him, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his suffering being conformed in his death, in order that I may attain to the resurrection from the dead, not that I have already obtained it or have already become perfect, but I press on so that I may lay hold of that for which also I was laid hold of by Christ Jesus." Brethren, I do not regard myself as having laid hold of it yet, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and reaching forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. A couple of things that Paul does in this passage that nail down for us what Paul believed his purpose was. He says that he considered all things in this life to be lost. He compared them to, or he basically said they were all rubbish compared to knowing Christ, gaining Christ, and being found in Christ. He went on to say that he speaks of knowing the power of Christ's resurrection, Christ's suffering, and being conformed in Christ's death. He described his purpose here as pursuing the upward call of God in Christ and used phrases like pressing on, laying hold of, reaching forward. It was absolutely clear from what we just read that Paul's purpose in life was completely, totally, 
utterly wrapped up in one thing. Specifically, one person. Christ. Paul's purpose was completely consumed in his relationship with Christ. You go back to that passage and look at the number of times he mentions Christ. Our purpose has to be found in Christ. And that's exactly what we're going to see in our passage today. We see that same sentiment in chapter 3. So I've decided to title this particular teaching session, The Purpose Found in Jesus Christ. As you notice, we've done that with each one of these teaching sessions. We start all of them in a very similar way, and they all end with, In Christ Jesus, or In Jesus Christ. And so this one is, The Purpose Found in Jesus Christ. We're going to see three things today. I usually try to break our stuff down into three things because that's what they say you're supposed to do. The first one is that since we have been raised up with Christ, we should keep seeking the things of Christ. You'll notice that Paul starts each one of these with a theological statement and a response. And so the first one is, we have been raised up with Christ. That's a theological statement. Therefore, we should keep seeking the things of Christ. That's our responsibility. That's our purpose. He then goes on, he says that since we will be revealed with Christ, that's the theological statement, he says we should therefore put to death the sinful behaviors and desires of the past. That's our response. And then lastly, he says that since we have been chosen by God in Christ, we should then put on the virtues of Christ. So that's our outline for today. Let's look at the first one. Since we have been raised up with Christ, we should keep seeking the things of Christ. Look at verses one 2 and 3. Chapter 3, verses 1, 2, and 3. Therefore, if you have been raised up with Christ, keep seeking the things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on the things above, not on the things on earth. For you have died with Christ, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. Now the first thing I need us to do is to look at that word, if. Therefore, if you've been raised up with Christ, that is better understood as since. I won't get into all the details unless Dustin wants me to. But when you look at the Greek language, every if statement is formulated in some form of condition. And based on the context, you sort of use those conditions to determine how to translate that word if. And this is what's called a first class condition. What it means is that the if is assumed to be true. It should be translated as since. That's the way that it's to be understood. So, a better way to read this would be, since you have been raised up with Christ, that's already been established by Paul in the context. Go back to chapter 1, verses 3 through 7. Chapter 1, verses verses 3 through 7. We give thanks to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, praying always for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus, and the love which you have had for all the saints, because of the hope laid up for you in heaven, of which you previously heard in the word of truth, the gospel, which has come to you just as it has in all the world, also is constantly bearing fruit and increasing, even as it has been doing in you since the day you heard of it and understood it, by the grace of God in truth. Paul was convinced that they were indeed in Christ. If we look at chapter 2, verses 9 through 15, listen to what Paul says about them and what they have in Christ. For in him all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form, and in him you have been made complete. He is the head over all rule and authority. In him you, you who are um, circumcised with a circumcision made without hands, in the removal of the body of flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you also were raised up with him through faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. When you were dead in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he made you alive together with him. 
having forgiven all of our transgressions. Paul was convinced that they indeed were in Christ. And so when he says here in chapter 3, verse 1, Therefore, since you have been raised up with Christ, it's because they had indeed been raised up with Christ. Those of us who have placed our faith in Jesus Christ have been raised up with Him. That is our position in Christ. That is our reality. We talked a little bit about this before. There's the already but not quite yet. We haven't fully, completely been raised up with Christ yet in a practical sense, but in a positional sense, we have been. It is true of us. So exactly what does that mean? What does it mean for us to have been raised up with Christ? Turn to Romans chapter 6. We're going to do this quite a bit this morning. We'll look at some other passages, but Romans chapter 6, Paul gives us a picture into what it means for us to have been raised up with Christ. Romans chapter 6, starting in verse 1. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin so that grace may increase? May it never be. How shall we who died to sin still live in it? Or do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into his death? Therefore we have been buried with him through baptism into death, so that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have become united with him in the likeness of his death, certainly we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection. Knowing this, that our old self was crucified with him, in order that our body of sin might be done away with, so that we would no longer be slaves to sin, for he who has died is free from sin. Now if we have died with Christ, we believe that we should also live with him. Knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, is never to die again, death no longer is master over him. For the death that he died, he died to sin, once for all, but the life he lives, he lives to God. Even so, consider yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Let me just summarize it for you. It means that we now have new life. And this is true even now in this earthly life. We have been given new life. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says that we're new creations in Christ. The old is gone. The new has come. This also means that as Christ has been raised from the dead, we too will be raised from the dead. It means that our old self has been crucified. Paul mentions elsewhere in Colossians here that our body of sin, our body of death has been done away with. That's our old sinful nature has been nailed to the cross. That old man is now dead. Now Paul, when he mentions this in Romans in his own struggle with sin, says that when he sins it's no longer him, but sin that dwells within him. His old man has been crucified, but there's still that old man of sin, if you will, that likes to sort of get its hooks in there. But see, that's been done away with. We are no longer slaves to sin. Prior to coming to Christ, our only option really was sin. But because that old man has been put to death, because we have been raised up with Christ, we don't have the option to not sin, but instead to do righteous things. Being raised up with Christ also means that we are spiritually alive. We don't ever have to face spiritual death again. Jesus died in our place so that we would not have to. Ultimately, it means that we are now dead to sin, dead to the power of sin, and dead to the penalty of sin, and we are now alive in Christ. And so, that's what Paul encapsulates right here. Since you have been raised up with Christ, since all these things are now true, what is the expectation on us? What is our purpose now living in the reality of that theological truth? 
Well, Paul tells us right there. He says, keep seeking the things above. Right after that, he says, set your mind on things above. That's our new purpose. We are to seek. In fact, in this context, the language is keep seeking. Do it continually. Keep setting your mind on the things above. That's what he says. Keep seeking the things above. Where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Notice he contrasts seeking the things above with seeking or setting our mind on what? The things that are on the earth. He sets up this contrast. So we are to seek the things above. We are to seek the things where Christ is. Not to seek the things on earth. Now it's interesting, Paul uses this word therefore as well. Which means that he's reflecting back on what he has already said. And the reason that's important in this context is it defines for us what the things above are and the things on earth. Because that's what Paul's just laid out. Now, first and foremost in your mind, you might be thinking, seek the things above, don't sin. It's not specifically what Paul has in mind here, even though that is an aspect of it. Because Paul defined for us, prior to this chapter, what the things above are and what the things on earth are. And so he's telling us that we are to pursue the things that he just laid out and avoid the things he told us to avoid. And so what are those things? Well, the things above where Christ is are what he laid out in chapters 1 and 2. I'm going to summarize briefly what he did for us in those chapters. He said, in him, Jesus, are all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. He said that in him, believers have been firmly rooted and are being built up and established or confirmed in Christ. He said that all the fullness dwells in Christ. All the fullness of deity dwells in Christ. He says that in Christ... We've all been filled, we've all been made complete, we've been circumcised, buried, raised up, forgiven, and made alive. All in Christ. And in Him, He has triumphed over the forces of darkness and evil, and therefore we have overcome that as well. Those are the things above to which Paul is referring here. Those are the things we are supposed to seek. Those are the things we're supposed to set our mind on. Now, the things that are on earth... Paul tells us what these things are as well. In those first two chapters, he says that they refer to the legalistic food laws and the strict observations of festivals and certain days. He talked about false humility and the pursuit of false humility. He talked about the pursuit of knowledge through philosophy, elementary principles of the world, the worship of angels, seeking this deeper, darker, secret, hidden wisdom of God found through these mystical practices. He talked about their self-made religion and their severe treatment of the body, which is probably a reference to this severe form of fasting, thinking somehow that by fasting and treating their bodies severely that they could somehow, somehow overpower their fleshly desires for sin. These earthly things are directly the opposite of the things above. And so in the context of this book, what Paul is basically telling them is you should not be seeking or pursuing or setting your mind on all of those earthly practices that you've been involved with. All those things you think you need to add to Christ in your relationship with Him. You shouldn't be setting your mind on those things. Instead, you should be setting your, thing, your mind seeking the things that are all found in Christ. That's the context of the book. And so that's what Paul is talking about here. Now, he does talk about sin and other things. We're going to get to that. But first and foremost, that's what he's telling us. That our minds ought to be set on Christ and what has been accomplished for us in Christ. I told you before about my own upbringing in the Catholic Church. And how for the first couple of years after getting saved, I struggled with assurance of salvation. 
And my mind was focused on how do I keep my salvation in Christ? And because of my background, I'm thinking about the works that might be necessary. Am I good enough? Am I going to church enough? Am I doing this? Am I doing that? What do I have to do to keep my salvation? And it wasn't, I wasn't freed up until I began to realize, wait a minute. My salvation is secure in Christ because of what Christ has done. If he saved me by faith, and if I am now in him by faith, if he is now my righteousness, I don't have to worry about it. There's nothing I can do to keep my salvation when it was given to me as a free gift based on faith as a, because of God's grace. So I began to set my mind on what Christ had accomplished for me rather than what I could do. I began to seek those things, seek understanding Christ more. And as I did that, and as I grew and matured in my faith and my relationship with Jesus Christ, ah, what a relief. Because my mind was set on things above, not things on the earth, not all those earthly practices and earthly things that I thought I needed to do to maintain my salvation. So we need to continue seeking the things of Christ. Look at what he says in verse 3. For you have died and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. Now, what is it that you think of when you think of hidden? You know, a game of hide and seek maybe? A better way to understand this idea of being hidden here is that it implies safety and security. In other words, it's hidden, meaning it's safe and it's secure in Christ. The one thing the scriptures make absolutely clear is that when God looks at us, what he sees is a reflection of Christ. Christ has become our righteousness. Christ has become our salvation. And it's because of that that we are now hidden. We are now secure and safe in Him. The perfect explanation of this is found in Galatians chapter 2.20, which says this, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave Himself for me. We are hidden, we are safe, we are secure in Christ. Essentially what Paul is saying here is that our faith in Christ has made our salvation and our relationship with him secure because he now lives in us. We can't do anything to make ourselves more secure. We can't do anything to make ourselves more in Christ. We can't do man-made religious practices or other things that somehow will enhance what's been done for us in Jesus Christ. So what's the takeaway for us in this? Because we've been raised up with Christ, because all these things are true, we should make it our purpose to keep seeking the things above and set our mind on those things instead of earthly practices and earthly things. We should set our minds on the wisdom and the knowledge found in Christ, the reality that we've been firmly rooted in Him, that we're being built up in Him, that we've been established and confirmed in Him, that we've been filled and made complete in Him, that we've been buried crucified, raised up, and made alive in Him. That's where our mind ought to be. That's the thing we ought to set our mind on. We ought to be pursuing those things. We should not be setting our mind on the weak and worthless worthless things that Paul says of the world to try to somehow make ourselves more like Christ or to somehow make ourselves more secure in Christ or to somehow gain more favor from God. Paul moves on. He gives us a second theological point and then what our purpose should be in relation to that. Since we will be revealed with Christ in glory, we should put to death the old sinful behavior and desires of the past. One of our great hopes as Christians is that when Christ returns, when he's revealed, we will also be revealed with him in glory. 
That's our hope. That's why we're supposed to look forward to the glorious appealing, appearing of Christ. We will be revealed with him in glory. John wrote in 1 John chapter 3, verse 2, that when he appears, we will be like him because we will see him just as he is. John followed that up, followed that up however, with this statement. And everyone who has this hope fixed on him purifies himself just as he is pure. So there's motivation there, John says. Because Christ will be revealed in glory, because we will be revealed with him, therefore now, here, we ought to purify ourselves. Which is his way of saying that we ought to put off the old sinful patterns and behavior of the past. That is our expectation. Again, it's that already not yet. We have been made perfect, made complete in Christ. But that doesn't mean that practically we don't still sin. That practically we don't hang on to the old behavior Sometimes, So we are told to purify ourselves in that respect. It's not an ultimate purification, meaning it doesn't save us, but it does reflect obedience. Jesus said as part of the Great Commission that we are to baptize and then do what? Teach them to obey all that I have commanded. And so one of the purposes we have in Christ is that because we have been revealed with him in glory, we should put on or put off the old sinful behaviors of the past. John links are being revealed in glory to Christ with our obligation to purify ourselves. And that is exactly what Paul talks about here. Look down at verse 4. He says, When Christ, who is our life, is revealed, then you also will be revealed with him in glory. He then follows this up with a number of statements. Look at verses or look at verse 5 through 7 here. Because you will be revealed with Christ when he is revealed, he says this, Therefore, consider the members of your earthly body as dead to immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and greed, which amounts to idolatry. A more literal rendering of verse 5 there is, Therefore, put to death your members that are upon the earth. It's kind of an awkward, weird Greek statement. But it's Paul's way of saying that we're to put to death whatever sinful earthly desires that are still residing in many respects within us. He mentions things like sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire. And greed. Those are the members he's referring to. So essentially he's saying that we are to put to death those things. It's because of these things that God's wrath is coming, he says, upon the earth. Why don't you turn to Ephesians chapter 5 with me. Ephesians chapter 5. But immorality or any impurity, or greed, must not even be named among you as is proper among the saints. And there must be no filthiness or silly talk or coarse jesting, which is not fitting, but rather giving of thanks. For this you know with certainty that no immoral or impure person or covetous man who is an idolater has an inheritance in the kingdom of God and Christ, or kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, In other words, don't let anybody convince you otherwise. For because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not be partakers with them. For you were formerly darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. For the fruit of the light consists in all goodness and righteousness and truth. Trying to learn what is pleasing to the Lord. Do not participate in the unfruitful deeds of darkness, but instead... Even expose them, for it is disgraceful even to speak of the things which they do in secret. But all things become visible when they are exposed by the light, for everything that becomes visible is light. 
he goes on and tells them after that to continue to walk properly in Christ. So the first thing that Paul tells us here is that we put to death these old sinful patterns of behavior. They have no place in our lives because we ultimately will be revealed of Christ in glory and therefore we purify ourselves from these things. It was interesting. I woke up this morning. My phone was exploding. I usually turn off the, um, the cellular service at night because I sleep with it right next to my head. And I don't know if it's going to melt my brain or not. But I figure I'll just turn it off. So as soon as I turned it on, ding, ding, ding. And uh, I think at one point, I bet if I counted them up, there's probably 50 messages minimum between Dustin and and Matt, a few, not a lot, a few, between my mom and my family and my siblings. It was just going off over and over. And Amy's like, can't you shut that up? Well, the problem is that when I turn the volume down, I have it set to where calls from certain individuals still come through in case they have to get a hold of me, you know. And I have the ringer on stun. Doesn't be one of them, yes. Um, but mom sent me one. I thought this was interesting. Mom's, she said, I'm at church this morning. And uh, she probably won't mind I use this as an example. She listens sometimes. She may hear this. But um, she said, you know, I'm at church. I'm working at church this morning. It's a Catholic church. And she's like, um, one of the workers is sharing some disturbing stuff about the Pope with me. Do you know much about him? And do you know what? I think, I think what this woman might have been alluding to is the Pope's recent comments about um, blessing same-sex couples. He did come out and say, well, you know, gay marriage isn't compatible, but there might be a way bishops and cardinals and priests can still bless same-sex couples. And so my response back was to say, I think, I think that's what you might be referring to, but then I gave her a little bit longer response about the Pope wanting his cake and eating it too. You know, you, you can't say that it's sin, which he has said before, homosexuality is sin. You can't say homosexuality is sin, any more than you can say theft is sin, or adultery is sin, or lying is sin, or beating somebody is sin. But we can bless them. But we can bless that activity. God's okay with it. You can't have it both ways. And so Paul here says that because we will be revealed in glory with Christ, we can't have it both ways either. We have to put off that old sin of the past. He goes on, secondly, and he says that we need to put aside the old sins of our past because we are continually being renewed according to the image of God. Look at verses 8 through 11 of chapter 3 there. We first put those off because the wrath of God comes upon the unsaved. Now, he says, you put them off because you're constantly being renewed according to the image of God. Look at verses 8 through 11. He says, but now you also put them all aside. He mentions anger, wrath, malice, slander, abusive speech from your mouth. Do not lie to one another since you laid aside the old self with its evil practices. And you have put on the new self who is being renewed to a true knowledge according to the image of the one who created him. A renewal in which there is no distinction between Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave and free man, but Christ is all and in all. Paul says here that another reason we need to put these things off is not just because the wrath of God comes upon those who do them, but because we are being renewed into the image of Christ. We are being made more like Christ. Again, the already, not yet. I think it was um, Nick that mentioned last week the um, concept of salvation, that we have been saved, we are being saved, and we will be saved. And that is very true. We have been saved, and we are permanently saved. That is an act of salvation, where we have secured eternal life in Christ. But, 
Sometimes an old man still likes to poke his ugly head in there. And so we are being saved, meaning there is a process where God, through the process of faith in Him and obedience to His commands, He is perfecting us, making us more like Christ. Hopefully, I hope this is true of all of us in here, that we are more like Christ today than we were a week ago. That we are more like Christ today than a month, a year, a decade ago. That's the hope. I've mentioned this probably a million times. Earl Rodmacher, one of my first professors, has said that people like to get saved and stuck, meaning they come to Christ and then they don't grow. They don't become more like Christ. They resist that work of God in their life that is trying to shape them and make them more like Christ. But then we're also going to be saved, which means ultimately that full glorification, the completion of our faith in Christ. And all those things are true. And so Paul's talking about that middle one. We are being saved here, that we are being conformed to the image of his son. That is the process supposed to, that's a process that's supposed to take place. In Colossians chapter 2, verse 11, Paul wrote that we were circumcised by Christ and this body of flesh has been removed. It's not hanging over us anymore. We're not in bondage to it. At least we're not supposed to be. In Romans 6, verse 6, Paul says that the old self was crucified with Christ in order that our body of sin might be done away with so that we would no longer be slaves to sin. So as a result, we're supposed to put on the new self who is continually being renewed in knowledge according to the image of God who created it. Did you catch that part? Renewed according to knowledge. You know, people poo-poo doctrine. We can't. Because it's that knowledge of Christ that God uses to shape us into and make us look more like Christ. You know, some of us have technical jobs, meaning we have to continue to learn as technology changes. Much like a medical field. You have to constantly learn and grow, right? If you didn't, it wouldn't be much longer before you'd be no good. We'd still be having these people bloodlet us, Right? Because they wouldn't have learned that just bleeding somebody doesn't cure anything, right? However, there is one. Steve Schmeckel's got some disease where they have to let out blood every so often because of too much iron. But my point is that we obviously have to know what we're growing into, right? You want to be a better doctor? You have to grow and learn. If I want to continue to do my job in technology, I've got to grow and learn, you know? Dustin, at some point, had to grow from learning that he couldn't put a square peg in a round hole or something like that as an architect. It's similar when it comes to Christ, is we have to know what the Bible says about Christ. We have to know what the Bible says about God, about holiness, righteousness, purity, and even sin. And so we are constantly being renewed in a knowledge of Christ. So what's our takeaway with this particular one? When Christ returns and is revealed in glory, we will be revealed with him in glory. And because of that, we should make it our purpose to prepare for that day by putting off sin. So again, our takeaway is that because Christ is going to return and be revealed in glory and we will be revealed with him, Paul says we need to put off. We have to have as our purpose putting off that old sinful behavior, patterns of sin that we used to be enslaved to. Turn to Titus chapter 2 with me. Titus chapter 2 Verses 11 through 14. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men, instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires and to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age, looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ. Did you catch that? He says that God has revealed His grace. He's brought salvation to all men. 
And that salvation teaches us to deny ungodliness, worldly desires, to live sensibly, righteously, godly in this age while we look for the blessed hope and appearing of Christ. Another thing I love about the scriptures is how often such themes are repeated in multiple places by different authors. And so the takeaway for us is that we should deny ungodliness and worldly desires and we should live sensibly, righteously, and godly in this present age now because we will be revealed with Christ in glory. He gave himself up to redeem us, it says, from every lawless deed and to purify for himself a people of his own possession so we should no longer live in sin. Are you ready for that day? If he were to appear today, would you be ready for that? Or would you find yourself feeling a bit of shame that you haven't put off those old behaviors, that old sin? That day is coming. Some have speculated that maybe that's why Christ wipes away every tear. Don't know. Paul moves on to the third theological point and a purpose that's related to that. And it's in relation to what he just said. It's not just enough to put off that old man. There's a new man we should be putting on too. And so the third point is, since we have been chosen by God in Christ... We should put on the virtues of Christ. I don't know if I shared this story or not with you, but um, indulge me if I have. So when I went to visit Amy in the hospital, um, one of those days I kind of walked in, and I think it was the first day I went to see her. I know I shared this with some of you guys. Maybe I've used it in a sermon illustration before, but again, just indulge me if I did. So I show up at the hospital, And there's a process you have to go through, and especially because it's a psych ward, there's even more. You have to leave everything behind. So you've got to take your wallet out, your phone out. You know, it's almost like taking a pacemaker out. Uh, You know, having that phone off to the side because they don't like being detached from it. But you put all that stuff in. And so there's already that interesting frustration I'm going through. And the lockers that that they had me put my stuff in wasn't working. So you could set a code, but it wouldn't unlock then. And so I'm trying. She's resetting it, and I'm getting a little bit frustrated internally thinking... You know, I want to just leave it here with her, right? You know, but we're going on. Going on. And finally, I just said, you know what? I'm going to just lock it in the locker. When I come back down, you can unlock it for me. Let's not worry about the code. So she's like, well, that's a good idea. So I'm already a little bit, you know, first. Plus, I had to park all the way down the street, and I had to walk. It was hot that day, and so by the time I walked from the garage to where I had to go in, I was already starting to have beads of sweat. You know, I'm like, oh, great. So I'm frustrated, right? I get up to the floor. She, they tell me, go up to the second floor. So I go up to the second floor, and I come off the elevator, and there's nobody there, and there's just locked doors. I'm like, there's no signage telling me where to go or what to do. And I'm like, now where do I go? So I waited a little bit. I looked through the door and I see people looking at me and I can see some of the patients in there, but nobody's coming to the door. I'm like, good grief. You know, now what do I do? Do I knock? What do I do, you know? Um, So then I notice this woman come out and she's got about eight patients with her. And she comes out through the door and she just looks at me and she gives me this look like, what are you doing here? I'm thinking, so I said, "Um, I'm here to visit Amy Hay. And she's like, okay. That's her response. Okay. And I'm like, um, I don't really know where to go or where to even find her. And she's like, oh, she kind of rolled her eyes. And at the same time, another guy came through, an orderly or somebody came through, and he kind of looked at me and goes, um, do you need something? And I went, yeah, I'm just trying to go visit Amy Hay. She's you know, somewhere up here. And I gave him the room number, and he's like, oh. And he looks at the other woman, and she looks at him, and then he looks at her, and she looks at him, and they go back and forth, and she doesn't know what to do, and he doesn't know what to do. And I'm like... So finally I just said, um, can somebody just help me and point me where I need to go? I'm pretty sure I could find her if you just point me in the direction. He goes, well, hang on a second. She hands him a sheet of paper. He looks at the sheet of paper and he goes, you're here to see who? And we go through the whole process. He goes, well, I think I can probably help you. I'm like, great. By this time I'm already like, great, you know. So 
finally he kind of swipes his card and we go in there and he goes, I got to check your bag because I brought her a gift with a teddy bear in it and some other stuff, you know, from the church. And so he empties the whole bag out, looks at everything, make sure I didn't put any contraband in the teddy bear, you know, that kind of stuff. So he looks at all that stuff. I'm cool with that, but it's now, you know, this whole process now has been about a half hour since I left the car. So he goes, okay, well, Candy over here can help you out now. So Candy's a lovely lady sitting behind the, the desk. Great. So I walk around, I go to Candy, and she's got her head down, you know. She doesn't look up at me. He walks away. I've got my bag with stuff in it that he's already gone through, and I'm waiting patiently, and she's not saying anything, and I'm waiting, and I'm waiting, and probably waited about a minute, and finally said, um, excuse me, and she's like, uh, hold on, young man. All right, you know, so I'm like, okay. And she keeps doing whatever she's doing. But, it, but she's shuffling papers. So that's all, she's just shuffling papers. One paper here, then she grabs this, and she shuffles this. Like she's organizing her desk. And I'm just waiting there. So I waited patiently, and she goes, I'll be with you in a second. I'm like, problem, you know? And so she's kind of got this edge and this attitude towards her, or about her, you know? Fine. I'm frustrated, but we're, we're good here, you know? And... Um, she finally stops and she puts some papers on and she goes, what can I do for you? Just like that. And I said, um, I'm here to see Amy Hay. She's like, who? Just like that. I'm like, Amy Hay. She's like, hold on. Do you have your code? There's a special code you have to use. I'm like, yes. And I had to look it up on my phone because I didn't memorize it, you know. Figured I'd already given it to people downstairs. Whatever, right? So here's the code, you know. She's like, all right, hang on. And she starts shuffling more papers. I'll be with you in a second. So now I'm waiting longer, and she's shuffling more papers, right? And I really, on the inside, I'm, like, I'm almost like, oh my gosh, I just want to pop her little head off, you know? And um, so she finally just says, okay, well, here, I'm going to have to search that bag. And I said, oh, the orderly that just searched it around, and she cut me off. I don't care. i got to search the bag. So she starts searching the bag. She notices there's a little tag on the bear. I've got to remove this tag. I'm like... All right. Well, now she can't find scissors. And so she's looking for scissors. And then she's struggling with the tag, you know. And um, so finally I just, I thought, oh my gosh, and I'm, I'm, I'm getting ready to lose it. But in my head, I'm thinking, I've got to be careful here. Because my behavior matters to somebody, right? So in my head, I'm like, all right, time to turn on the charm. And I'm not thinking like Mike charm as much as, I'm going to treat her exactly as I think Christ would treat her. And so I looked at her and I said, um... The guy over here told me your name is Candy. She's like, yeah. And I'm like, um, it's kind of a cool name. I said, uh, don't hear that name a whole lot. Did your parents name me that? She goes, yeah. She goes, but you know what? And she grabs this placard and she sticks it up on the top. And right on the placard it says her name, Candy. And then it says, not as sweet as you think. And she goes, I'm not as sweet as people think. And so I said, really? I said, okay, why is that? And she's like, that's just the way I am. I'm not very sweet, so it doesn't match my name. And I said, well, I still like the name. I think it's kind of cool. And then so she's like, yeah, whatever, or something like that. She makes some offhand comment. But I thought, she's not getting it yet. So she continues to do her thing and trying to cut the tag off, you know. And so I said, well, you know what, can I help you hold that tag there? She can get that off. She's like, I guess, sure. And so she snips it, you know. And I said, so tell me the story behind your name. What led to that? I said, you know, it's just kind of strange that, you know, you tell me your name, but you don't tell me the heritage behind it. So she's such a strange name. So she starts talking about her name. And so I began to just playfully respond to it and chit-chat with her. And like over the top, I mean, it was so fake. Okay, I admit that. But in my mind, I'm thinking, I'm going to win this woman over, right? And so we get about, I, I must have been at the desk there for about 15 minutes as she's fiddling with the tag and doing this and that and everything else. And so 
I just keep doing what I'm doing and trying to be over the top nice and ask her questions and try to play with her a little bit, you know. And, and so finally she looks at me and I said something to her, but I said, you know what? I think you're a lot sweeter than you let on. Maybe you just don't like to let people know. And she kind of stopped. She looked at me and she goes, you must be the pastor. <laughs> and I said, well, yes, I am. And she just got this big smile on her face, you know. So then she got a lot nicer. I went to see Amy, but when I was leaving, I kind of walked by her desk, and I put my hand on her desk, and I said, Hey, Candy, appreciate what you did. I said, I really do think you're sweeter than you make out. And she kind of got this big smile on her face, and she goes, All right. She winked at me, and I left. A couple days later, when I called there to talk to her, she answers the phone, and I said, Hey, Candy, it's that pastor guy. And I heard her kind of laugh. She goes, What can I do for you, Mr. Pastor? Okay, why do I share that stupid little story? Well, we're supposed to put on the virtues of Christ. I could have just sat there and just prevented myself from popping her little head off like a Pez dispenser. You know, but that isn't enough. We're supposed to take that old behavior, the way that I really wanted to respond, and replace it with the virtues of Christ. In Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 and 4, Paul wrote that God chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world, and he lays out his purpose and his reason for doing that. It, he tells us explicitly, you have been chosen by God. Not the other way around. God chose you. And the thing we find in the scripture is that God has always desired more from his chosen people than avoiding sin. Even with Israel in the Old Testament. After laying out the 600 and some odd plus Old Testament commands, God reminded Israel not to be overwhelmed by that, but that it is doable and is possible if they would do one thing. Love me with your whole heart, soul, mind, and strength. It wasn't just avoid all those bad things in the law that I gave you. It was do more than that by adding the virtues that are associated with him, loving him with all heart, soul, mind, and strength. He calls us to the same thing. It's not enough that we simply put off these old sinful behaviors. What God wants is for us to put on the virtues of Christ. Look at verses 12 through 17 of chapter 3. So as those who have been chosen of God, that's the theology, because you've been chosen of God, holy and beloved, put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, patience, bearing with one another and forgiving one another, Whoever has a complaint against anyone, just as the Lord forgave you, so also should you. Beyond all these things, put on love, which is the perfect bond of unity. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ richly dwell within you, with all wisdom, teaching and admonishing each other with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks through him to God the Father. Let's just run down through those things quickly. We're to put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience, he says. That's hard to do sometimes, isn't it? It's one thing to simply say, I'm not going to blow up at this bozo. But to put on a heart of compassion, to understand maybe why that bozo is behaving the way that bozo is behaving. Maybe understanding why candy might be the way candy is, not always so sweet. And putting on kindness instead and humility and being gentle and being patient. Those are hard, aren't they? 
But it's not enough just to put off the opposite behavior. We need to put those things on. Notice it says here in verse 13, we're supposed to bear with one another. We're supposed to forgive one another. Again, very difficult things. He says we're to put on love, which is the perfect bond of unity. You know, it's interesting. A more literal translation is just simply put on, bu- put on love, which is the perfect bond. It sort of fixes a lot of things. Love covers a multitude of sins, does it not? That's why God is able to love us even before we loved him. His love covers our sins. It says that we're supposed to let the peace of Christ rule in our hearts. I had an interesting conversation with mom the other day. She brought up some of my Facebook posts. I try to be very careful. I try to be witty and humorous and sometimes a little biting. I try to measure the situation and respond appropriately. Sometimes I've referred to people as morons or bozos or hypocrites. And mom brought that up and she said, that's not always Christ-like. And so I told her, I said, mom, if you ever think I post something that's unchristlike, like call me out on it, let me know, I'll look at it. But then I had a conversation with her. I said, you know, mom, Paul referred to certain individuals as cancer and gangrene. Jesus referred to the Pharisees as whitewashed tombs. Paul even called the Galatians foolish. I said, there are times where biting language is appropriate, but it has to be appropriate to the circumstance and situation. And we have to be careful about it. And I said, and I try to walk that line sometimes, but we are supposed to let the peace of Christ rule in our hearts before anything else. So we should seek peace. We're told in verse 15 that we're supposed to be thankful. He goes on in verse 16, he says we're supposed to let the word of Christ richly dwell within us and through that then teaching and admonishing one another. It's important that we let the word of Christ richly dwell within us. I've shared this before that oftentimes um, whenever it comes to counsel or answering people's questions, um, in my head I immediately begin to think through, is there a passage of scripture that I can use in my response. Maybe not always quoting it, because I'm not always great at the chapter and verse, but the principle behind it. That ought to be the way that oftentimes we respond to people is, what does the word say my response should be? How should I respond to this? But that's not often the way that we do it. We're supposed to let the word of Christ richly dwell within us. Finally, he says, whatever we do in word or deed, we're supposed to do it all in the name of the Lord, giving thanks to God the Father. How many times do we actually do that? Do we stop and think, am I really doing this for the Lord? or for myself. And so, what's the takeaway with this last portion of our passage this morning? We are God's chosen people. He has chosen us. And because of that, we are holy and beloved to Him, and we should make it our purpose to not just avoid sin, but to put on the virtues of Christ. God doesn't want us to just stop sinning. He wants us to start acting righteously. There's a huge difference between those two. Paul sums it up perfectly in Romans 13, 14 when he says, But put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh in regard to its lust. Did you catch that? Put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh. So Paul ties again this idea of stopping sin to putting on Christ. The Colossians were being led to believe that spiritual wisdom, knowledge, and growth including things like overcoming sin, all came through self-made religion and mystic practices and all of these other forms of legalism. They thought that was the way to deal with sin. But Paul says those things are not a way to protect us against indulgences of the flesh, he says. Instead, the solution when it comes to sin is you put off the sin, but you have to put on Christ. That's ultimately what helps protect us against indulgence of the flesh. You have an issue where you're struggling? Put on Christ. Don't just try to put off the sin. Even AA, 
understands that. Alcoholics Anonymous. They understand you can't just stomp down sin. You have to put on... Well, they don't reference Christ specifically, usually. But at least they understand the principle of putting off old behavior and putting on the right kind of behavior. It's no different today when it comes to us. We ought to be looking to not just put off sin, but put on the virtues of Christ. So I think of this passage this morning, and again, what we're reminded of is... We actually have a new purpose in Christ. Paul has mentioned some of the theological things here. We have been raised up with Christ. And because of that, we should be seeking the things above. And we should be setting our mind on the things above. He says that we're going to be revealed with Christ when he is revealed. And because of that, we ought to be putting off the old man and the old sinful behaviors. And then lastly here, we ultimately, because we are God's chosen people, should make it our purpose to not just avoid sin, but to put on Christ, to put on his virtues. Amen?